so difficult to answer the questions and help people and, and talk about eternal things. And it feels like it's impossible to do anything that's really valuable eternally. <laughs> and so, honestly, I often feel completely uh, insufficient and incompetent. <laughs> and maybe you've been there too. Uh, I just want to share a, a poem, actually, that I wrote a year ago, but this is really the same kind of thing that comes up in those moments. I mean, am I actually really competent at anything? How does it feel to be a grown-up? To know, I mean really know that you're not bluffing. That you have a handle. That you know how to read the map the right way around to navigate the maze and treat all things in the proper way they deserve. Tell me, will I ever master anything? I keep hearing about potential, but what good is it if it's never realized? Is authority the right to speak and have others listen just on the other side of that door? I mean, I fear the floundering the floating through the world and doing nothing hitherto undone and of being content with that. I've only got a couple dozen thousand days to become someone. But who am I becoming? How am I becoming? Through what means will I become this man you say I am? I want it. I don't want to bluff can't afford to. Maybe the world can't afford me to. I'm just sick of being pretty good at some things and above average in some others. I want to excel. I want to grow up. So when you hear that poem, you can see why it's comforting to come across a passage in Scripture where the Apostle Paul exclaims the very same feeling, who is sufficient for these things? Where do we find our sufficiency? Personally, um, in coming to study for this sermon, I, I was a lot more familiar with the letter of 1 Corinthians than I was 2 Corinthians. And so I've so enjoyed studying 2 Corinthians because it's such an encouraging letter. It's such a powerful letter. It's one of Paul's most um, personal and revealing works about uh, what he was going through. And he was writing to the church in Corinth where he'd spent a significant amount of time establishing the church. He felt very uh, attached to his work there and his, his flock. And when he moved on to Ephesus, the next place that he went on to, um, you can read in other parts of the letter, he faced some significant suffering that made him say he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to Paul in Ephesus, but when you hear someone like Paul say that, and bear in mind he had been imprisoned numerous times, whipped, tortured, uh, stoned by crowds. Um, 
deserted by friends and family, when he says, I despaired of life itself, you know something pretty serious was going on. And so Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians, and he'd just been through what sounds like a a personal hell. And he was very concerned about this church in Corinth as well, because um, he had to send them, if you read 1 Corinthians, there's some pretty tough parts of that letter. Paul had had to write them some pretty stern correction on different things. And so he was concerned that his letter hadn't just completely destroyed uh, his, his, his little flock. He was anxious to meet his friend Titus, who was the one that carried the letter to them, and find out how it had gone. Um, and part of his particular worry at Corinth was that he was under personal attack in terms of his leadership from other teachers, from other uh, people that had come into the church, and that were challenging Paul's credentials his competence, his authority. They took Paul's constant suffering uh, and, and apparent failures as evidence of his incompetence. They criticized his uh, speaking abilities and his personal presence. They said he comes across weak. He writes these powerful letters, but in person, he's just a weakling. They also suggested that maybe he was a bit of a renegade. He wasn't connected to the real apostles. Uh, He wasn't even from Jerusalem. Where was his letter of recommendation? What were his credentials to be speaking as as an apostle? And so you put all these different things together, and Paul was in a really tough situation. He was worried about the endurance of this work that he'd poured his life into in Corinth. He was challenged on his personal competence and ability to lead, his worthiness to be an apostle. And on top of all of that, he's just gone through what was probably the toughest period of his life so far. And so the question, who is competent or sufficient uh, or worthy of these things, it rings out through this whole letter. And the answer that Paul comes to, that he presents, it's not only relevant to him, but it's relevant to everyone who represents Jesus and the gospel and serves God. And so the answer lies, and and there's going to be three parts to this, the answer lies in the fact that we're God's vanquished captives. That we live as vulnerable sacrifices poured out for him. And that we find our sufficiency in the fact that we are victorious sons in Christ. So first of all, um, in verse 14... Paul says, despite all these challenges to me in the gospel, thanks be to God, who always, at all times, leads in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, to all places. Now, he uses the phrase triumphal procession there, and that image of a triumphal procession would have been very familiar to the people he was talking to um, because this was the Roman victory parade. Whenever a Roman emperor or general would conquer a new uh, territory for the empire, they would return to Rome and parade through the streets uh, announcing the victory. And the whole city would turn out um, to see the... uh, the procession of 
um, sacrificial animals being led to, to, to thank the gods for the victory, of the, the masses of captives uh, that were being led to, to, to slavery, um, and the, the victorious army of soldiers returning home. And the streets and temples would have been bursting with the scent of, of flowers um, and, and the victory celebration. And so this, that, that word, triumphal procession, Paul uses it one other time in his writings in Colossians 2. And he says Jesus uh, is parading the defeated powers of darkness in triumphal procession. But in what we've read here in 2 Corinthians, Paul says God, is, God in Jesus leads us in triumphal procession. So you have the, the, the sacrificial oxen, you have the uh, captive prisoners, and you have the victorious soldiers. Which one are we in that picture? And you, you would probably think at first, well, we're the victorious soldiers in Christ. Um, and in one sense, we are all three, and we're going to see that. But what was surprising to me in studying this is that when Paul uses this picture of the triumphal procession, he doesn't put himself in line with the soldiers. One of the uh, soldiers conquering with Christ. Rather, he says he's one of the captives. He's one of the conquered enemies of Christ. We know this because any time that that word triumphal procession, uh, leading in triumphal procession, whenever that's used in the Bible or in uh, Greek literature, it always referred to leading the captured prisoners in victory. And so Paul's saying, first of all, he is conquered by Christ. God is victorious at all times and in all places, but to join the parade, it has to be as a captive. We don't come on our terms, just casually defecting to the side with the better benefits, the side that we think, "Eh, it's probably going to win. Paul says he comes absolutely conquered, vanquished, utterly defeated, It's so easy for us to deceive ourselves and think that we come to God on our terms. When we're ready. Well, God, when I just get these few things done in my life, when I sort these things out, then I'll follow you. Then I'll come to you. When it seems appealing, uh, then then we accept God into our lives. Paul says, no, the reality is, without Christ... We're not neutral. We're his enemies. We're dead set against him. Working against him, rejecting his authority. And if anyone comes to Christ, it's because he's conquered them. He's overcome their defenses to bring them into his kingdom. That's why Paul in Romans 5.10 says uh, that we are reconciled to Christ as enemies. Jesus conquers us. But it's not through force. He conquers us through his love. Unlike a Roman general that would uh, conquer an army and, and after they surrender, maybe would even 
uh, still demand their death, their execution, and those that weren't executed were put into slavery. Uh, Jesus died for his enemies to save them from their execution. Even though we were enemies, he went out and pursued us and fought for us and won us through a battle to the death. And so, Paul pictures himself as a captive, and we picture ourselves with him, if we're in Christ, as captives in that parade. But we're happy captives, joyful prisoners. Paul was the joyful captive. He knew that he was the ex-enemy of, uh, of Jesus, chosen out by grace to join in God's incredible mission. The beginning of the Christian life is that joyful exchange of everything that we have for everything that Jesus is. It's a joyful surrender. But it is a surrender. That's why Jesus says that joining his kingdom, it's, it's, it's full of joy. It's like a man who finds a treasure in a field and from joy sells everything that he has to get that field, to have the treasure. Or he says it's like a, a pearl merchant who when he finds one pearl of incomparable value sells everything he has from joy to get that pearl. He doesn't sell everything he has out of, oh, there's no other option left. Or uh, if I don't do this, I'm afraid of what's going to happen. No, it's out of joy. And Paul is hinting here that he's a captive, that being part of, of Jesus' victory parade, it doesn't always look victorious to, to people that are looking on. It doesn't always look like a victory. In fact, it looks like being a prisoner. <laughs> And that's exactly what Paul's uh, critics were saying. His life is full of defeat, full of weakness. But Paul's saying, although it might appear like weakness, I serve a victorious general that's captured my heart. And he has utterly vanquished me. And so I go where he leads. So what does it look, to, what does it look like to be vanquished, to be defeated? Well, you raise the white flag. You give up. You stop fighting. You throw yourself on the general's mercy. And you have to go where he leads because he's won you. It's not on your terms. It's not with a little bit of sovereignty left over. And so the question for us is, has Jesus vanquished you? Has he conquered you? Or are you just trying to retain a little bit of your own sovereignty? Only if we let him conquer our hearts can we join that victory parade. And that idea of, of being vanquished brings us to the second point. As Paul says, God is spreading the, the fragrance of the knowledge of him through these joyful captives. In verse 15 he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
The word that it uses here for aroma was what was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, to refer to the pleasant aroma of the burnt sacrifice before God. And so Paul's saying that the joyful captive is also the completely vulnerable sacrifice before God. This is what his life looks like, a life that is totally consumed for his, cap- his, his conqueror. <laughs> And that's an idea that he mentions explicitly in Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. He says, um, uh, the life of um, a believer in response to what Jesus has done, in response to, to his love for us, giving himself for us, the only rational response of a follower of Jesus is to offer their whole selves back to him as a living sacrifice. Living because... Uh, it's not only in our death, but it's in our day-to-day life, living for him in every part of who we are. That's what Paul calls your rational service, your spiritual worship, which is holy and pleasing to God. And so, the beautiful thing about that, in that verse, is that as we give ourselves to God, It says, we are the aroma, not of ourselves, not of our imperfect, uh, messed up sacrifices that fail half the time. Paul says, as we live our lives out to God, we are the aroma of Christ to God. A pleasing aroma at all times. The life of a believer exudes the aroma of Jesus as it's lived out to God, as, a, as an offering of gratitude. It's not, a, it's not an atonement offering, it's a thanks offering. Thanks for God's free gift in the gospel. And so that's a beautiful thing. But the next part of this, uh, the next verse, brings the reality of what that means into Terrible focus. (laughs) Because the life of the believer proclaims the gospel, the good news about Jesus, it means that as we represent Christ, God uses us as he used Christ as an instrument of mercy and judgment. Now what I mean by that, the fragrance of Jesus divides humanity in two. And Paul paints it in uncomfortably stark terms. (laughs) He says, there's two paths in life. One that leads towards Jesus. And because Jesus is the source of life, it leads more and more into life. And there's a path that leads away from Jesus, further into ourselves. And because it leads further away from the source of life, it leads only further into Death. More and more life and death and more death. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 3. He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
And then in verse 17, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus lifted up on the cross this symbol to everyone present, this symbol of death and sin and judgment. At the very same time, God transformed into the ultimate symbol of life and forgiveness and mercy. To one viewer, it's a symbol of judgment. To another viewer, it's a symbol of mercy. It all depends on whether you look to Jesus raised up as what you're going to throw yourself on in mercy or what you're going to turn away from in disgust. The cross is the source of salvation for those that are being saved, and it's a process of being saved. It's a trajectory of life. And it's a source of judgment for those that are in the process of getting more and more lost, those in the process of, being, uh, of perishing. Two paths, two trajectories. For those that are in the process of perishing, and this, this, is, this is weighty stuff to talk about. <laughs> For those that are in the, on that path that only leads to more and more perishing, the smell of Christ in the cross, in the life of the one who's given out as a sacrifice to, to Jesus, the smell of Christ is ultimately repugnant. Becoming captive to him smells like death. And therefore, it leads more and more into death as we're repelled from him. Disconnecting ourselves from the source of life. But for those being saved, Jesus is the sweetest smell. It's the smell of mercy. It's the smell of love and self-sacrifice for us. The smell of compassion. And so it leads more and more into life as we draw closer to the source of life. That's what the proclamation of the gospel does. It's the most beautiful thing. It's the most terrible thing. It's a source of everlasting offense or it's a, sense, or it's a source of everlasting joy. That's why Jesus called himself the rock of offense. Some trip, some find their foundation. Some find their refuge. And so, no wonder Paul says, who is sufficient to talk about these things? Who am I to talk about such things? And that word sufficient, uh, it's also translated as worthy or qualified or competent in other places. Who is competent? Who is qualified to talk about this stuff? And the people that Paul uh, was coming up against were asking the same question. These are important questions. What gives you the right, Paul, to talk about these things? What are your credentials? They asked for uh, letters of recommendation. What is your training? They laughed at his simple style of, of, of speaking. 
What's your experience? They pointed to all the times when it seemed like he'd failed. All different ways of measuring uh, a person's competence for a particular job. And Paul himself, later in the letter, he adds another one. Spiritual experience. What, what, uh, what experiences of God's presence have you had? And I don't know if you're sitting there and feeling this like me, but there's been so many times when I've asked, Ian, what gives you the right to talk about this stuff? You're messed up. Look at... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's just true. It's just true. <laughs> uh, what gives you the right? What makes you worthy to talk about this stuff? Do you realize how serious this is? This is eternity. Do you have the right degrees, <laughs> the right training and recommendations to prove that you know what you're talking about? Do you have the, the persona, the confidence, the personality to win people over, be persuasive? Do you have enough successes and experience under your belt? Have you had enough experience of God's spirit and, and his, his, his presence to really prove that you know him, that you're spiritual? <laughs> well, Paul's response and my response and your response can be nothing but utter humility. How can we possibly claim to be competent in ourselves to talk about these things? If anyone stands up here to, to preach, that's where it starts. It's not out of a sense of competence in ourselves or, or, or qualification. It's a sense of humility. That's what I feel every time I get up here. It's a scary thing. Not just because you're talking to a bunch of people, but because you're dealing with such incredibly important things. We have to be vulnerable before God and others and say that we can't, we can't claim worthiness in ourselves. The best that we can do is offer ourselves everything that we are to God as a living sacrifice. I know I'm not much, but here's everything I have. That's all you have to give. Everything you have. <laughs> we were his enemies. He captured us, and now we pour ourselves out back to him. That even when we let ourselves be captured, even when we pour our lives out as a sacrifice, you know what? Those things still are not enough. Those things in themselves, the fact that you surrendered to God, the fact that you are living your life for him, those are not meritorious acts. Um, to quote the great spiritual giant, Chris Rock, uh, <laughs> It's almost, like a, it's almost like a father who boasts, I take care of my kids. You're supposed to. <laughs> he says, what do you want, a cookie? <laughs> You're supposed to take care of your kids. Letting God be the master of our lives, pouring our lives out for him, that's what we should have done in the first place. That's not a meritorious thing. That's the bare minimum of what we should be doing anyway. And so those things can't be 
what we base our worthiness on. There has to be more. And thank God there is. <laughs> the wonderful message that's in this letter, and it's, uh, it's buried in the fact that as desirable as those things are, none of them is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. In him, we are sufficient. When you try and build your spiritual resume on those things, it leads to nowhere but frustration and envy and burnout. And Paul, actually, he goes one further than that. He has no problem calling people that base their worthiness to deal with the things of God, that base their their worthiness on those things. He calls them false apostles. That's a scary label. Because it's a ridiculous claim to make. Even Paul, who had better credentials, more education, more successes, more dues paid, more spiritual experiences, he understands that even though these are good, even though they're desirable, even though they're necessary, uh, they're not sufficient. They can't make you worthy. Your sufficiency must come from a higher source. And Paul recognized that the only one fully worthy, fully competent, fully qualified, is Jesus. The one who vanquished his heart. The one who made himself vulnerable for our sake. The one who looked at him in utter grace and said, you're my son. So earlier we asked, which which one are we in the triumphal procession? The, the sacrificial oxen, the, uh, the captive prisoners, or the victorious soldiers? Christ went before us in all of those things. He's the vanquished king who humbled himself and surrendered himself to death. He's the vulnerable sacrifice, the Lamb of God who willingly submitted to the cross for our sake and who offers the perfect and eternally pleasing sacrifice to God. And he's the victorious son that won the conquest and was given all authority over the kingdom. The only way that you and I can be worthy is if we're in him. You know, it's interesting, Paul never uses the word Christian in any of his writings. What he, the way that he describes the essence of what the uh, life in God is like is to be in Christ. To be in Christ. It's an identity. It's a location for your being. If Jesus makes us his own, then we gain all the inheritance that God gave to him. That is a mind-blowing reality. (laughs) We become co-inheritors with Jesus. Jesus didn't only come to make us vanquished prisoners or sacrificial prisoners. Um, animals. (laughs) He came to make us victorious sons, receivers of the inheritance. That's that's why it uses the word sons. You can say, 
victorious sons and daughters, victorious children. God knew (laughs) that's what he wanted to do through Jesus' sacrifice, through his vulnerability, to make us sons. So Paul knew that every moment, every circumstance that led him to question his competence, his worthiness before God, it was actually an opportunity to rely on him more. It was actually an opportunity to be more and more in Christ. That's why in uh, chapter 1-9, he says that all the suffering, all the questions, all the challenges that he was going through, he said they were to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so Paul learned God's answer to his cry for sufficiency. And it's in the most, uh, one of the most beautiful phrases in in the New Testament. In in chapter 12, verse 9, he says, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. When God captures our hearts and we pour out our lives to him, our weakness and inability and incompetence, rather than being disqualifiers, they're actually opportunities to boast in God's power. That's something I have to preach to myself <laughs> every single time I feel, oh God, this is, this is way above my pay grade. <laughs> It's an opportunity to rely more on him. And so all of this leads Paul in, in uh, uh, the, the last verse of what we read in 2.17 to say the only way to represent Christ is in sincerity, being seen for who you really are, in boldness, banking on Jesus' authority because he's the one that commissioned you. And in holiness, because we live in the sight of God, we're in his presence constantly. But all of it is couched in the fact that we speak in Christ, in his his authority, his identity, speaking not for ourselves, but speaking in Christ. And so here's a recipe for sufficiency. You are his vanquished captive. We have to give up. Give up our rights. Let him conquer us. Let him lead us. Your life is that of an utterly vulnerable sacrifice poured out for God. Give all. Give everything in return for what he's done for us. And your identity is that of a victorious child of God. Now grow up. (laughs) That's what I keep telling myself. Ian, this is who you are in Jesus. Grow up into it. That's what it's about. It's not one day far from now we'll become uh, uh, a child of God. No, no, no. You are a child of God now. Your job is to grow up if you're in Christ. (laughs) And so... Um, 
give up, give all, and grow up. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> There's going to be, I, I think, is there going to be a prayer team after the service? So I, I would just encourage you, if, if, like me, God is speaking to you in this area, first of all, if you've never let God conquer your heart, come and pray. That's where it starts. First, second of all, if you know that you should be a living sacrifice, but like an annoying living sacrifice, you've crawled off the altar again, and you realize you need to get back up on the altar, <laughs> come and pray. And if you realize that you started basing your worthiness, your sufficiency, your qualification, your competence on something other than the fact that you are a victorious son or daughter of God, then come and pray. Father God, <laughs> thank you for leading us in victory through Jesus. Thank you for conquering our hearts through your love. Lord, we want to pour out our lives as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to you. And speak in your name with sincerity, with boldness, with holiness. Thank you, Father God. Help us to give up, to give all, and to grow up in who we are in you. In Jesus' name.